And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. I would like you to imagine with me a young man at Bethlehem who falls in love with a young woman at Bethlehem and she doesn't even know he's alive as far as he can tell. And so he undertakes a plan to try to first of all get her attention and then hopefully her affection and Lord willing her commitment in marriage because he's sold on this young woman. And so he carries out his plan by finding out what small group she's in and making sure he gets in that same small group. He learns when her birthday is, finds out her tastes, some of their common friends, what she especially wants, and uh, then he rents a room in a restaurant, uh, plans for her friends to be there, arranges for her roommate to bring her there, buys her that special gift, and uh, she comes. And they have a great time. Everybody loves the party. She loves the party. The gifts are all great. She thanks everybody all around when it's over, and she goes home. And she never even asks who planned this party. And all the gifts and food and fun just completely overshadow the planning and the creativity and the affection that went into it. Well, that's the way we are if we love Romans 8:28 and don't pay any attention to verses 29 and 30. Do you love to think about everything working together for your good, but don't like to get all into that theology of verses 29 and 30? Do you like to uh, sit down at the table and enjoy your favorite spiritual dishes, but when the cook comes out of the kitchen and sits down with you at the table and starts reminiscing about his culinary art and how he put all that together in the kitchen, you just get up and leave. Let him sit there by himself. Brothers and sisters, let's not be like that at Bethlehem. Let's love the dish of Romans 8.28, but when the cook comes out of the kitchen in verse 29 and sits down and starts reminiscing about the preparations of our redemption, let's stay there and hang on every word and love him for it. Let's begin with verse 28 today and the first two words of it. We know. We know that God is exerting sovereign power to paint a portrait of us that though it's very imperfect now, someday is going to resemble Jesus Christ, His Son. 
Someday the sun preeminent in our midst is going to be surrounded by millions of mirror-like images just reflecting back His glory. And that will be the fulfillment of our destiny and His glory and our joy and His majesty. We're sure. We know, Paul says, we know that is what's going to happen to us. Can you say that this morning? I know that's my destiny this morning. I know it is. Well, the foundation of that banquet of expectation is the culinary art of God in the kitchen of eternity, and it is laid out for us in verses 29 and 30. Let's look at it to encourage that word we know. First, He foreknew us. He took note of us. He set His favor upon us before the world was. He didn't wait around to find out how we would be. He decided for us to make us how we should be. He chose us before the world was, before we had done anything good or evil. He set His favor upon us. You only have I known from all the people that are on the face of the earth. I have set my favor upon you. Therefore, you see, you just reverse the logic now. You t- verse 28 at the bottom and you put verse 29 at the top and you, instead of reading for, you read therefore. Therefore, we know. Therefore, we know that He will work everything together for our eternal destiny. He chose us. Or second, those whom He foreknew, He predestined to share the image of His Son. Therefore, we know He'll do it. You see the logic? We're just turning the verses upside down and instead of reading four at the beginning of verse 29, we turn them upside down and we read, therefore, He chose us. He predestined us to this glory. Therefore, we know, we know our confidence and our certainty is rooted and grounded in the kitchen. He is committed to us from all eternity. So far, so good. But now, between verses 29 and 30, something terrible happens. A massive obstacle rises between predestination for glory and glorification at the end of verse 30. A massive obstacle. And Paul never even refers to it. He just talks about how God flattened it. But we've got to talk about it because we haven't been preaching through Romans two and three where that big obstacle is talked about. We just picked it up right here at verse 28. So we better just stop for a few minutes and talk about this massive obstacle between our predestination to glory and our actual glorification. And you know what that obstacle is. Sin. Or more seriously, God's wrath against us in our sin. Here's what the Bible says about us. All of you and me have sinned and fallen short of our appointed duty to glorify God. Way short. 
Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. We are blinded by the God of this age. We are dead in trespasses and sins, hardened in our heart, cut off and alienated from God, futile in our thinking, by nature children of wrath, under the omnipotent anger of God against sin. That's just the way it is. That's the way we are. And nobody is exempt in this room. Every person who has committed one sin is by nature a child of wrath and under the anger of God. You remember, those of you who get the star and read it, that last week I wrote a little article in which I described what God did for me last Saturday afternoon. I was coming across the bridge and he caused me, having meditated in Ephesians, to feel like a little, little teeny two-ounce person basking in the sunlight of his grace, standing on a granite mountain 10,000 miles across. And what I meant was secure, safe. It wasn't always that way with John Piper. There was a time when that massive mountain of granite was not under me, but over me, hanging, called the wrath of God against me in my sin, ready to fall and crush this little two-ounce rebel against the King of Kings. And I don't think it's too much to say God hated John Piper in those days. You say, whoa, no, 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 no. The biblical way to say it is he hated your sin and he loved you. That's not, that's not accurate. It's inadequate. It weakens my situation. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful may not stand before thy eyes. Thou hatest all evil doers. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. His soul hates him that loves violence. God hates unrepentant sinners. You ever say that to your child? All we say to our children is God loves everybody. Benjamin asked me this morning, now let me get this straight, Daddy. You said last night God hates unrepentant sinners. Yes. Well, does he love everybody? We'll talk about that tonight. The Bible says he hates unrepentant sinners. Don't logicize the Bible out of existence. Let it have its say, especially when it talks to you and me. There is a massive rock of wrath hanging over unrepentant sinners. And will you call that love? God hates me when he contemplates me in my sin. So what good is Romans 8.28? Who cares that I am elect before the foundation of the earth? Who cares that He has predestined me for glory? If now I have erected a barrier of sin and His wrath is hanging over me like a mass of granite 10,000 miles across ready to crush me as soon as I die in my sin. What good is all that planning in the kitchen? 
unless unless God in the fulfillment of his predestining grace should hit upon a way to avert his wrath acquit John Piper of his sin and cure him of his perversity could it be that perhaps God in the design of eternity took into account this massive obstacle and not only predestined me for glory but predestined a steamroller by which he would flatten that obstacle could that be those whom he called he justified it is possible it is possible In fact, it isn't just possible. It is finished in Jesus Christ. Between the Denver of predestination and the Pacific coast of glorification, there emerged the rocky mountains of God's wrath. And they are impassable for the railroad of life. And not only that, my engine is frozen in the foothills of Colorado. Justification is the work of God by which the Rocky Mountains of His wrath are made into a plain. downhill to glory. This is a great truth, brothers and sisters. This is precious. If you're here outside Christ, I have prayed for you today that you would fall in love with this truth. It is adequate for every sinner in this room. You've not done one thing in your life that God can't steamroll and turn into a downhill to glory. Let's talk about it. What is justification? What's its basis? And how can we sinners ever hope to benefit from it? What is it? Justification is the act by which God forgives your sin, acquits your guilt, averts His wrath, and gives you His righteousness and lets you stand there before His bar of justice, innocent. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 verses 6 and 7. And I want to show you that there's a a kind of a negative and a positive. There's a takeaway and there's a give. There are two things that are counted to us or imputed to us in Christ. Let's read these words of Paul quoted from Psalm 32 to show that David himself knew about justification. Verse 6 of Romans 4. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Did you see that first one? Reckons righteousness. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon. And there's the negative. Not reckon his sins. So you see what justification is? Positively, well, let's start with the negative. Negatively, it's a a not reckoning of all my sin. He looks at me in all my sin under this massive rock of his hate. 
This is the answer for tonight. This is what I told Benjamin. He looks at me under that massive rock of his hate and he contemplates me in Jesus Christ and he doesn't see any sin anymore. Or, to put it positively, he looks at his son and just takes all the righteousness of Christ, he slips it under that rock, gives it to me, and the rock just goes right around and becomes the foundation of my life and is his righteousness. Well, what's the basis of this amazing gift by which my sins are simply taken away? All of them, past, present, and future, gone. And the righteousness of my Savior, which is perfect, is clothed around me. And all the wrath of God is just taken around and put under me like a mighty boulder of righteousness to sustain me. How can that be? How can he just do that? That's utterly unjust. That was the thing that Paul wrestled with. How can God do such a thing? And of course, he didn't just do it. It cost him his son. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, this is a verse that every believer should cherish in your memory every day. Do you read in the paper about the California slayer accused of 68 slayings and had his hand up there with the pentagram like that, the satanic symbol in the paper? There's one of those painted on the 11th Street Bridge. There's one on the sidewalk across the street from my house. There's one on the Franklin Street Theater. What would you do if someone walked in here? with a banner of a pentagram and said, Hail Satan! And they appeared at every door. What would you do? You know what I would do? I would quote 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sakes, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that enough? Just think of what that verse says. All of His righteousness made mine, all of my sin made His, and the rock falls on Jesus. And that is the end of it. It is finished. And I would say, you have no claim on me. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His blood is all over me. His righteousness is all around me like a cloud of light. What are you going to do now, you servants of Satan? Go ahead. See what you can do to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of confidence Brothers and sisters, we are in a warfare you have not begun to imagine the weight of. Well, it is not just Jesus who is the basis, it is his death. Therefore, having been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by his life. So here's the foundation of our justification and it is massive and utterly adequate the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ unto death in my place is the foundation of my justification I'll say it again the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ unto death in my place 
is the foundation of my justification. And it is enough. And the last question is, how then can I as a sinner ever hope to get in on this? This sounds great. This is too good to be true. Is there any way I I could do something? What can I do, God, that this might be mine? This is unbelievable that you would just look away from me and treat me with righteousness. And you know what the answer to that question is? Well, there are two answers. I want to say the first one, even though it's not very often spoken of, so that we will give God the honor for the second one. The first one is there's nothing you can do. Did you notice in in Romans 5, in your your study and in your reading, in verse 6 it says, while we were yet helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for His own. Those whom He foreknew and predestined and called, He justified. He died for them while they were helpless, while they were ungodly. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies... Now notice, when did he do it? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. When were you reconciled to God? While you were an enemy. By the death of his Son. You didn't do anything to get reconciled to God. That's the first answer. And if you don't hear that answer, you won't understand the second answer. For the second answer lies on the face of Scripture everywhere. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Well, now what does that mean? How is it that we are justified by faith when in fact, while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to the Father by the death of His Son? Here's what I think justified by faith means. Justified by faith means by faith we hear, receive, delight in, and rest in the word of acquittal. The acquittal was made before we believed, while we were yet enemies, ungodly, weak, But the word of acquittal is delivered in the call of God and faith hears it and says, Me? Me? Yes, me. I'm included. That's what faith does. Justification is the hearing, the receiving of the word of acquittal. And brothers and sisters, anybody in this room this morning who will believe is acquitted. And that's the gospel. Now let's go back to Romans 8.28. We know. We know that all things work together for good because we were foreknown and chosen by Him before the foundation of the world. We know that all things work together for our eternal glory because He predestined us for this glory. We know that He will flatten the rocky mountains of His wrath and open a way from Denver to the Pacific coast because He justified us. One last possible uncertainty needs to be dealt with here. And then one more next week. Could it be that since justification is heard and delighted in and enjoyed and rested in by faith, and faith is an act of will, 
that there now creeps in some uncertainty, some contingency to this process of foreknowledge and predestination and justification and glorification. Something creeps in there that is uncertain. And now I, I can't have the absolute certainty you've been talking about because it's up to me. And the answer is no. There is no uncertainty. There is no contingency. For those whom he predestined, he didn't just justify, he called. You know what it is to awaken a sleeper, don't you? If someone's asleep, if your child is asleep and the house is on fire, how do you get him up? You call him, wake up! And he wakes up because your voice has the power to awaken sleepers. Well, the whole world is asleep only. It's asleep with the sleep of death and sin. And the voice of God not only can awaken sleepers, it raises the dead. Wake up, Jairus' daughter. Wake up, son of the widow in name. Wake up, Lazarus. Wake up, church, at the end of the days. And wake up, sinner, this morning. When the Holy Spirit summons by its call, it wakens people out of the sleep of unbelief and disobedience. There is no uncertainty. There is no uncertainty. Those whom he foreknows, he predestines to glory. Those whom he predestined to glory, he awakens from the dead by his effectual call into a life of faith. Those whom he awakens to faith, Hear the declaration of acquittal and they are glorified. I beseech you, I urge everybody in this room, turn away, turn away from all your efforts at self-justification. Turn away from sin. Turn to Christ this morning. Reach out, believe and receive the declaration of acquittal that stands there for all who believe. There isn't anything greater and more satisfying in all the world than to say with all the saints of all the ages, I owe my election to the foreknowing of God. I owe my destiny and glory to the predestination of God. I owe my, my acquittal and the averting of God's wrath to the justification of God. I owe my faith to God's effectual call. And therefore, we know that all things work together for good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I beseech you, I beg of you, in the name of your Son, that you would effectually call to yourself in this room right now those who have not heard and received and rested in the word of acquittal which was made for us in the death of Jesus Christ. Open the eyes of the blind. Awaken those who are asleep. Grant faith to those who are callous in their unbelief. Do a work of revivification, regeneration this morning, Father. And may many people date from this very hour their effectual call 
and the hearing and the enjoying and the resting in the word of acquittal, not guilty through Jesus Christ. Amen.